Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom coming off of Ohio State's fifth win of the season against Rutgers, a game that I think was pretty much what we thought it would be. It was not the most exciting, thrilling football game that either of us have ever watched in our lives, but ultimately Ohio State took care of business and came away with a convincing 49 to 10 win. Yes, yeah, you know, it started off with a little bit of choppy waters for the Buckeyes because of that, you know, muffed punt fumble from Emeka Ibuka. Rutgers gets on the board first in Columbus. So, you know, that, that was a little more turbulence than I think some Buckeye fans were hoping for against the Rutgers, given the historical track record against the Scarlet Knights. But in the end, Dan, what, you know, the odds makers came in expecting Ohio State to win by 39. They end up winning by 39 in a 49 to 10 victory. You know, yet another blowout win for the Buckeyes against Rutgers you know, despite Greg Shiano returning to the program. Certainly the star of the day was Mayan Williams, who tied Ohio State's school record for rushing touchdowns with five touchdown runs, had 189 yards on 21 carries. We've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. I've kind of waded slowly into the waters of saying that Mayan Williams is Ohio State's best running back. But now, now I'm ready to dive all the way in. It felt like a hot take a couple weeks ago. It doesn't anymore. The way that Mayan Williams is playing right now, I believe he is Ohio State's best running back. And again, that's that's no knock on Travion Henderson, who I think is also a fantastic player. But I mean, you just look at the way Mayan Williams is playing this year. You, know, you, you looked up the stat the other day that of running backs in the FBS right now who have had at least 50 carries this year. Mayan Williams has the highest average yards per carry of any running back in the country. Pro Football Focus also rates Mayan as the best running back in college football. Mm. And so, I mean, it's it's a phenomenal one-two punch to have. Obviously, they want to get Travion back healthy, but... I mean, you had talked about it like you, you kind of wanted to see what would a Mayan Williams game look like where he finally got to be the bell cow or he got to run the ball 20 plus times a game. We saw it and it was spectacular. Yeah. And obviously coming into the game, Ryan Day and Ohio State thought that Travion Henderson was going to be healthy for the Buckeyes. Obviously, he got injured on that that opening drive against Toledo a couple weeks ago, came back and played. It didn't look you know, unhealthy against Wisconsin, ended up having 20 plus carries in that game. But but then we, we found out in pregame, after pregame, really, really just minutes before kickoff, Dan, that Trayvon Henderson was going to be a game time decision. And the fact that they kind of announced that right when they did, it kind of seemed like, OK, you know, it's Rutgers. They're probably not going to play Trayvon Henderson. But you, you, you still might have thought that, OK, you have Mayan Williams out there, but then are, are we going to see Dallin Hayden splitting series with Williams there as they usually kind of do? with Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams. But no, they, they really rode Williams for, for almost the entire game up until, you know, halfway through the fourth quarter or something like that. And what we saw was ex- exactly what you just said, which is, you know, Mayan Williams had never carried the ball more than 14 times in a game. And, and his, his yards per carry for his career has always been, you know, super high. So it's kind of like, he, he it's not like he, he's never had that, that super breakout performance until Saturday against Rutgers, but he never really had the opportunity to because he'd never gotten the, the touches that you would need to, you know, have one of those huge runs that that 70 yard touchdown run he had to add on top of a, of a very nice performance otherwise. And, and that's what we saw from Mayan Williams given the opportunity. And now, Dan, it really looks like, I mean, especially with Trayvon Henderson having, you know, health issues game to game, which we've, we did see last year a little bit with him having to leave some games and, and being shut down in a couple of second halves, things like that, that Mayan Williams could really have his chance to, you know, be the be RB one for Ohio State, and and it's funny too because 
Last year, Travion Henderson really got that opportunity because of some injury issues with Williams, and that's when he emerged and had that that huge breakout performance against Tulsa. And then it, it was it was no looking back ever since that. But now that Henderson's dealing with some issues, we see Williams kind of stepping up in a, in a similar vein, and we'll see what he can do if he continues to get more opportunities. It's an incredible luxury to have, right? Because we were talking to going into the year about Travion Henderson might be the best running back in the country, and now you can say Mike Williams might be the best running back in the country. He really, he really might be. That that's how well he has played so far this season. So it's an incredible luxury to have to have two running backs who are that good. And obviously, the the ideal scenario is for both of them to stay healthy to continue to use both of them in regular rotation. And and that keeps both guys fresh and it, and it makes Ohio State's run run game really hard to defend. I think with Mayan and Vervo, I, I just think, I think the offense has more of that, you know, punch you in the mouth in it that I, I think Ohio State needed last year. In, in, those, in those big games where we saw Ohio State struggle to run the ball, there just seems like there's a different attitude to the way this team runs the ball this year. That starts up front. That's not that's not just Mayan because I think the offensive line has been better run blocking and not just the offensive line. I mean, I think the tight ends have been fantastic in run blocking. I think the wide receivers have been great in run blocking. So it starts with those guys up front. But I think Mayan is the guy, to me, it, he just seems more natural in what they're doing in the run game. Just the way that he hits the holes, how decisive he is, and then his ability to break tackles. And, you know, we saw it on that 70-yard touchdown run. He is not slow. He he is not as fast as Travion Henderson, but he is not slow. He can, he can make a big play when he gets ahead of steam. And so I, I just think everything Mayan's doing right now is really suiting him perfectly for what Ohio State wants to do in the run game. And I think having Travion as a changeup off of that, it, 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 it makes Ohio State that much more dangerous. But I do think if it was me, and, and we are recording this before the press conference on Tuesday, I doubt Tony Alford's going to come out and say anything about who his starting running back is going to be going forward, but he is talking to the media on Tuesday. So maybe he'll have said something that will have dispute what I'm saying now. But if it was me, I would put Mayan Williams as the starting starting running back going forward with Travion Henderson still continuing to get a very healthy share of the carries. Yeah, Dan, you talk about the run game in general, and that's a third straight 250-plus yard performance for the Ohio State running game. And, and like I've mentioned before on this podcast, Ohio State didn't do that in back-to-back games a single time last year. So to have three straight in that department, the highest yards per, per carry average of the season for the run game, as well, I believe, with a 7.4 on Saturday. And, and also, it's it not like Ohio State needed necessarily to have a monster day on the ground, but it wasn't, you know, C.J. Stroud in the Ohio State passing game's best performance. And so it certainly was nice, given the fact that Stroud only finished with 150 yards, to be able to lean on Mayan Williams and the run game, you know, even without Travion Henderson. Now, aside from Mayan Williams, the biggest headline of the day came after the results of a game was well in hand. Ohio State's already up 49 to 10. And then Jesse Murko, it's a fourth and two punt. He runs for 22 yards. He gets blasted by Aaron Crookshank on the sideline. And then we saw a war of words from Ryan Day and, and Greg Schiano. I'm, most likely everybody out there has seen uh, the great photos our Garrett Hodge took with Ryan Day just 
looking very fiery and angry, pointing at, at Greg Schiano, who had come all the way across the field to, to intervene with the skirmish. I don't want to call it a brawl because when I accidentally called it a brawl on, on Twitter on Saturday, I got my head chopped off. But <laughs> the skirmish, altercation, fracas, whatever word you want to use to describe what was happening between the two squads, which really was, again, I mean, uh, Crookshank, had, had a, a really big hit on Mirko. Crookshank ultimately got ejected from the game for that hit. And it was Ohio State's players stepping in to defend their punter, specifically Mitch Rossi. He was kind of doing the, you know, come at me over there on the sideline. They wanted to show if they had their punters back. But that certainly ended up being the, the headline of the day as, you know, all the debate about, you know, whether... It's okay to run a fake punt in 49 to 10 game. And, and again, you know, people weren't happy with me because I, I initially identified it as a trick play, which it, it was not a called fake. It was Jesse Marco seeing a, a wide open lane after Rutgers ran an all out punt block. And so basically the right side of the field was wide open and, and Jesse Marco, a an Australian rules football player who is used to doing that kind of thing saw it and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go for it. So I know from my mind personally, nobody should have a problem with Jesse Mirko running the ball in that situation. I, I have personally never been big on the whole don't run up the score. It's, it's, I, I, to me, this is Big Ten football. I mean, if they were playing like an FCS team, maybe I'd think a little differently. This is Big Ten football. Like, play for 60 minutes. It's okay. Nobody's feelings need to get hurt. If, you know, you know, you don't you don't have to stop playing the game just because you have a big lead. And and yeah, I think if if Ohio State had, you know, blatantly called a trick play in that situation, that would have been disrespectful. There also wouldn't have been much reason for Ohio State to do that because why would you burn something that you have at your disposal in a 39-point game? But that would have been kind of disrespectful. But for Mirko to, to take what was there for him and, and make up, I, I don't think there was anything for, for anyone to be mad about based on what Mirko did. Yeah, I think if we're just going to dial everything in at that point in the game, you know, given the score in the in the fourth quarter, then, 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 then I think Rutgers you know, on the other side has to just, you know, kind of drop back and, and, and not really, you know, they went for the all out block, like you said. So at that point it gave, it gave up something for Jesse Mirko to take advantage of. And, you know, he's out there just playing football after, after a live snap. And, you know, he saw open fat green grass there in front of him. And, and how about the wheels on Jesse Mirko too? Because he, he, he didn't look slow out there running the ball, Dan. I mean, yeah, Australian rules football player. It's not the first time he's done this. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was funny because we, we actually had him in an interview session before that game, which is kind of a, you know, serendipitous, but an, an unfortunate as well, because we, we didn't get to talk to him after that, which would have been much more interesting, <laughs> but he was talking about kind of, you know, how he, he jokes with his teammates and things like that about, you know, what, what position he would play if he was a skill player and, and that he would be a tight end or something like that, but it usually gets shot down pretty quickly. But, you know, I don't, I don't know about his necessarily his, his, you know, receiving skills, his blocking skills, but he did look pretty, pretty fast running the ball out there. And yeah, Ryan Day said after the game that, you know, he, he pulled Mirko aside after that play and, and asked him, you know, did, did anyone tell you to do that? And Mirko said, no. And, and Day said, Oh, we'll have another conversation about that tomorrow. But I think in the end, the, the, the conclusion seemed to be that 
no one was was that upset with Mirko on, on the Ohio State side anyway, because he ended up getting the, the special teams player of the game award from the program afterwards, which seemed to kind of, you know, be Ohio State signaling that they have their, their punters back and everything like that. And, you know, everything was respectful with Day and, and Shiano after the game in terms of, you know, Day said there was no hard feelings. There's an unbelievable amount of respect there between the coaches. Obviously, they coached together at Ohio State prior to Ryan Day taking over, you know, full-time as head coach of the Buckeye program. Yeah, it would have been more fun, you know, had Ryan Day, uh, you know, and Shiano thrown some more shots at each other after the game and the press and everything like that kind of made that the whole story pop a little bit more. But, you know, I wasn't like surprised to, to, to hear them kind of bury the hatchet right away considering their history. Yeah, I mean, it would have been it would have been out of character for Ryan Day to, to go into the press conference and just you start railing on, on Greg Schiano or vice versa. So not not surprised there, but they handled it the way they did. I mean, it, it, it's kind of an interesting history there between those two because they did work together, but ultimately Ryan Day made the decision not to retain Greg Schiano when he became head coach. And so, you know, I think it, it's natural to wonder about, you know, the dynamics there, like how, you know, are they really as close of friends? As they say, I, I, I do. At the same time, I do believe that you know this was a this was a heat of a moment thing. I think maybe we'll get a better idea a year from now when Ohio State plays Rutgers again. Whether there's any actual bad blood lingering from this, depending on you know what kind of play calls or whatnot we might see from from the two teams then. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, ultimately, it's one of those things that it's you know it's it's a it's a fun story. I don't think that it's something that is necessarily going to carry over. Beyond Beyond this week, you know, you, you did talk about, you know, Ryan Day's conversation of Jesse Murko. And I think, you know, a lot of people, when they heard that comment from Day, are kind of like, why are we discouraging this? Like, shouldn't you want Jesse Murko to run for path play? And I, and I think, you know, that's a that's a fair question. I, I think from Day's perspective, it's yeah, he wants Murko doing that in a tie game. He doesn't necessarily want Murko doing that in a 39 point game. But uh, again, I mean. You know, I, I'm I'm of the opinion, and you know, I know we were asked about this by Silver Sniper uh, regarding Kyle McCord and Devin Brown, and how you know they keep they get in the game, but then they're not they're almost never allowed to actually pass the ball because Ohio State's running out the clock. Why not you know give those guys some reps to actually pass the ball? And you know, I I, I think that's a fair question too because you know to me you know you, you know you got you got to let guys play like it's it's football like nobody. Nobody wants to go out there and just go through the motions to run out the clock. Like you put guys out there in the game, they want to go out there and make plays. And so personally, you know, I'm a proponent of, of playing the game for 60 minutes. You know, this, you know, this isn't, it's not peewee football we're talking about here. We're talking about major college football. We're talking about adults, young adults, but still adults. And so in, in my mind, you know, there shouldn't be this worry about, you know, you know, hurting people's feelings by by playing until the final whistle. That's, that's just my thought. Yeah. And certainly people were, were coming out of the woodworks on social media and everything like that, taking a one stance or the other about, you know, Ohio State going for it or, 
you know, should Rutgers have been, you know, more able to defend that, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if, if the intrigue doesn't exist in terms of these two programs trading wins and losses, you know, at least perhaps that little uh, dust up there between Day and Chiano will, will add a little extra intrigue for next year's matchup. I'm sure those pictures and, and video clips will resurface <laughs> yes. around game time for that one. But Dan, you know, before that, let's talk about some players that made a big impact in the score being what it was to that point. And on defense for Ohio State, the two guys that, that were the co-defensive players of the game for the Buckeye program, Steel Chambers and Zach Harrison. Well, let's start with Chambers here because he turns in a career-high 11 tackles for the Buckeyes, two of those going for a loss. He had a, his second the second interception of his career, although you know after the game he, he like erroneously said that he hadn't had the ball in his hands for, for two and a half years or something like that. But like he had an interception last year, Dan, so I didn't really know what he was talking about when he said that. He said it felt weird to have the ball in his hand. Felt terrible, actually, is what he said, to have the ball in his hands, given that obviously he doesn't play running back anymore. And so he's, he's not quite as used to doing that. But, you know, the, all of those plays were part of a... A, a very, very good performance for Steel Chambers, who who really flashed. You know, we, we talked so much about Tommy Eichenberg this season being that standout linebacker, and we saw, you know, a lot early on with the Chambers and Cody Simon splitting reps there at the will spot, but, but Chambers really, you know, I think solidified himself with his best performance of the season, and he was really all over the field against Rutgers. Yeah, I, I think Steele was a little embarrassed that he got tackled by the quarterback, and he, he's a fun player to talk to because he's he's very blunt. Like he doesn't he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He he just kind of says what's on his mind, and he's 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 also very self-deprecating. He's a not he, he he's not afraid to critique him himself harshly. But I think we are not going to critique him harshly. We are going to praise him because he had a phenomenal game, and he he was flying around out there you know Zach Harrison you made a comment after a game of basically damn those are some impressive plays for a linebacker to make and you know I would concur with that sentiment from Zach I mean you could really see his sideline to sideline playmaking ability with some of the plays that he made in this game and you know you just look at that linebacker position right now with with Steele and Tommy Eichenberg who also had another good game against Rutgers you know those two guys have just really solidified themselves as the top linebackers on this team and I think that's a huge development I think that's a huge reason why this Ohio State defense is actually a top 10 defense right now as they prophesized before the season because you know last year we saw it was kind of a revolving door at that linebacker position you know those guys played but not nearly as well as they're playing now you know Taraja Mitchell was in there Cody Simon was in there but now it seems like okay they found two guys and these two guys are really playing at a high level and I think they're really complementing each other well because I think Eichenberg is that you know, very, you know, classic throwback middle linebacker, a guy who just does a great job of really running the show in the middle. He's fantastic in the box, fantastic in the run, while he's also, he's, he, you know, he as well has shown, I think, more athleticism, more, you know, ability to move and playmaking range than maybe we thought we would see from Tommy Eichenberg this year. But then Steel Chambers really kind of has that, Again, sideline to sideline ability, but he can make plays all over the field. And so I think those two are really complementing each other well and turning what I would say was the weakest position on the team last year in linebacker into one of its stronger positions. And, you know, you got to give those two guys credit. I think another year of experience for both of those guys has been massive for them. But you also have to give a lot of credit to Jim Knowles because I think Jim Knowles has made those guys better players as their position coach and he's figured out how to utilize them in the way that 
best plays up to their skill sets. I don't think that was happening last year with those guys. I think now the way that this defense is schemed up is really allowing both Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers to play to their strengths. And as a result, we're seeing both of them becoming stars. And how about Zach Harrison on the defensive line? You know, Dan, the story's an interesting one because Zach Harrison, for, for the longest time, you know, was touted as, you know, he's a five-star recruit. Is he going to be a, you know, a first-round pick in the NFL draft? But then his first few years at Ohio State, the, the production didn't really follow. And then, you know, now he comes back for, for his senior season. And there, there's, there's younger talent that I think a lot of fans are, are saying, you know, they, they'd like to see guys like Jack Sawyer and JT play more than a guy like Zach Harrison, I think. You know, a lot of fans would say that, Dan. And Zach Harrison early this season hasn't necessarily, up until Saturday, you know, proven himself, you know, hasn't taken this huge leap or anything like that that I think maybe he would he would hope to to do in his, his potentially final season. But on Saturday, he forced two takeaways and really his best performance of the season so far, at least, you know, his most impactful for sure. One of them being a forced fumble, the other one being a pass deflection leading to that interception. And, and both of them, Dan, as you noted, came with him lined up as a defensive tackle in the, in the Rushman package. And I saw people noting on Twitter as well during the game, like, could, could that be a kind of a game changer for him if he starts playing more inside? And I wonder what you think of that as a possibility for him moving forward. Yeah, I think it's probably likely to remain a situational kind of thing with that Rushman package that they were using. And this and Saturday was really the first time we had seen them use that specific package with Jack and JT manning the ends and then Zach Harrison playing that free technique alongside Mike Hall. But, I mean, they, they only used it a few times and two of the times it resulted in takeaways. And so certainly small sample size would suggest that that is a package they should continue using moving forward. So I imagine we will continue to see it, especially in those third down passing situations. And I, and I do think that, you know, that's, that's certainly a role that can give Zach Harrison more opportunities to make plays. Because, you know, I mean, I think you know, you know, you know, realistically, I mean, you know, the expectations people have had that, you know, Zach Harrison would eventually become this, you know, 15 sack guy at Ohio State. That's that's it's probably not going to happen at this point. I mean, he hasn't even had a sack yet this year. But I mean, I, I've I've banged the drum for years that I think Zach Harrison is a good player. Like, I, I think the expectation has always been so high for him that in turn, people have viewed him as this big disappointment. But I think Zach Harrison has been a good productive player throughout his Ohio State career. It's a matter of trying to take that next step and it just hasn't quite happened. But certainly we saw on Saturday that, you know, you utilize him in the right way. He can be a game changer. And I think just that ability to get, you know, Zach and Jack and JT all on the field at the same time is something that's it's very intriguing. And, you know, we haven't really seen any of those guys like put up the huge numbers this year. And I, I think that is somewhat a function of just how this defense operates in that I think it is filtering more plays to the linebackers. And I think there's a lot of times where, you know, each of those guys are doing their jobs well, but they're just not getting any credit on, on the box score. And so I don't think that any of them have played poorly. I mean, I, I don't think that any of them have looked like Chase Young or Nick Bosa either, but I, I think they've all played well. It, you know, I think you'd still like to see, you know, at least one of those guys, you know, take things to another level and really become a star at that defensive end spot. But I think they've all played well. And I think 
creating packages where you're putting them all on the field together is going to make them harder to block and potentially open up more opportunities for each of those guys to make plays. And Dan, we talk about this game not necessarily being the the most thrilling affair we've ever seen. And one particular stretch in the game that that kind of drove that point home where, you know, we started to, to kind of chuckle in the press box and everything was just this really long drive by Ohio State, particularly in the red zone. They get down there late in the second quarter and just it, it seemed like, you know, Ohio State tried just about everything. There, there was penalties, you know, there was, uh, you know, timeouts called by Rutgers. You, you listed here, Ohio State ran nine plays inside the 20. There were three timeouts called during this stretch and Rutgers committed three penalties. Ultimately, Mayan Williams punches the ball in on a, on a fourth and goal to, to finally score a touchdown there. But like it got to the point, Dan, where I was joking about, you know, you have to feed Dewan Jones here in this situation or, or get Chip Tranum out there to, to, to backflip into the end zone or something like that. I, I don't know, Dan, you watch some of the plays that like the, the Chiefs run in the NFL, you know, when they're in that goal line situation and you're like, there's certainly some creative things you could try in Ohio State you know, had had some interesting options. I don't know if they necessarily exhausted all of those in that situation. And, and I know it, I was getting a, a chuckle out of you saying that you were going to write an oral history on that <laughs> series. So what did you make of all that, Dan? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a long try. I think one of our, our writers in our company Slack said that that took 11 minutes of real time for Ohio State, that Ohio State red zone trip that ultimately ended in a fourth and one touchdown run by by Mayan Williams, a red zone trip. But I joked, had all, all the pace of a final minute of a college basketball game. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was kind of a weird day in the red zone for Ohio State because it didn't always look pretty, but Ohio State ultimately went five for five. So you, you, you can't complain about going five for five in a red zone. Like that's, that's, that's ultimately the results you want to achieve. But it did feel to me at times, you know, you're talking about more creativity. Uh, to me, it was almost at times like, why not just run the ball? Just, just give the ball to Mayan Williams. Like he's having such a great day. Just, just keep, just keep feeding Mayan because it, it did feel to me like they got a little bit too cute at times in the red zone. You know, I looked at the numbers on Monday night and the Buckeyes ran 18 plays inside Rutgers' 10 yard line. Nine of them were passing plays. So, you know, I imagine that's based on, you know, what they're seeing from Rutgers defense. And again, ultimately they got the results. You can't, you can't, you can't critique the results. Every time they got down there, they scored a touchdown. It's just, it almost felt to me like at times, like they were making it harder on themselves if they needed to, because Rutgers really hadn't had any success stopping Mayan Williams all day. And then it felt like sometimes they're, they're getting down on the doorstep and now all of a sudden they really want to pass for a touchdown. So, you know, again, recording this before of a press conference on, on Tuesday. So, you know, I'm, you know, we'll be interested to hear if, you know, Ryan Day has anything about that at his press conference by the time you're listening to this. And, and, and again, I mean, if as long as you're getting the results, then it doesn't really matter how you achieve those results. But, you know, it's just one of those things that t- caught my eye that, that there were times like, man, just give the ball to Mayan. Yeah, especially because because he was sitting on those four rushing touchdowns there late, and there was that one red zone series where he he could have gotten the fifth, obviously to to to, to tie the single game 
Ohio State rushing record with P. Johnson and Keith Byers. And, you know, we're we're all hoping to see, you know, historical occurrences and things like that. It's true for the media, I'm sure, true for the fans as well. You know, I'm sure the the coaching staff as well, to a certain extent, if they even were aware of that in that moment. But it didn't seem like it because they they, they did not let Mayan get the touchdown on that, that one particular possession. They ended up getting him in the end zone for that fifth one. But on that one, for sure, I think like everyone in the, the press box at that point w- was kind of sitting on their 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 record tying pieces to the articles to put up and ended. And it was just like, man, just run the ball. Like, w- what are we doing here? I think part of that was probably like we've talked about. It wasn't CJ Stroud's best day. He finished 13 for 22, 154 yards. It was his his fewest yards as a passer, I believe, two touchdowns through his second interception in as many weeks. You know, maybe Ryan Day's trying to get him to have a, a little bit of a prettier uh, final stat stat line there and, a, and get in, into some rhythm before the game ended with trying to maybe force some of those throws there in those situations. We touched on it briefly earlier, but is Ohio State being too conservative about putting backups in these games? Because you, we, we've seen, you know, even as Ohio State has basically had four straight blowout wins, that the backups have not had a lot of opportunities to play. I mean, you know, you, you focus particularly on the quarterbacks with, you know, Kyle McCord, who, you know, I I went back to my, you know, low batting average on my players to watch for our last call, picking Kyle McCord, thinking maybe this is the day we finally get to, you know, really see what he can do. And then he threw free passes. So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, there's two sides of a coin there. I think, you know, for one, you know, Ryan Day, he doesn't want to put the backups in until he's absolutely sure the game is in hand. You also, you know, you, you want your starters to to get out there and play and keep getting reps. I think he wants, you know, he wants them to to keep getting better. So, you know, he wants to keep those guys in the game. You know, maybe he even wants to put up a few style points and make sure that, you know, Ohio State really is winning those games convincingly. But you know, I, I just I do wonder it, it might not be this year. It might be next year we're talking about this. But I just wonder if in the long run, if it's going to bite them a little bit that they've not given the backups as many opportunities to actually play as they could. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a philosophical change and it kind of go, ties into to some of the the things that Ryan Day has really been hammering this year in terms of like, OK, we're, we're going to have you know, maybe harder practices a little bit. I mean, that's been kind of a theme with building the toughness and everything like that. We've, we've heard about the, you know, the, 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 the run stopping drills and practice being like more of an emphasis, maybe more physical in practice. You know, obviously him, Brian Day always talking about the competitive stamina, this, that, and the third, but then even with like the, the shorter rotations right on defense, that's another part of that and, and having the best guys out there and, and this whole, like, you know, we need to play football and, and things like that. I think that's, that's definitely part of it and, and part of a philosophy for day. I think in terms of, you know, thinking that's going to help out with the, the toughness of this team and things like that down the stretch. Game coming up this week at Michigan State, the first road game of the year, which feels a weird thing to say here in October that Ohio State has not played on the road yet this season, but it finally will play on the road this season on Saturday in East Lansing, a game that going into the season, I picked as the game I was least confident Ohio State would win. But I'd have to say I'm a little bit more confident now of the way <laughs> Michigan State's played the last few weeks. Yeah, Dan, I mean, Michigan State is really reeling right now, to, to say the least. I mean, it's the first three-game losing streak under Mel Tucker since taking over. 
It's the first three-game losing streak to all then-unranked opponents since 2016, I believe, and those three losses, again, coming to Washington, 39-28. to Then, you know, after that one was kind of like, okay, but Michigan State can, can, can get back on track in the Big Ten, but then ends up getting, you know, blown out 34-7 to by Minnesota the very next week at home, and then most recently losing in a two-touchdown margin to Maryland, which, you know, has Maryland's having a, a pretty nice season. And I was looking at their schedule and thinking, you know, that that might end up being one of Ohio State's maybe tougher matchups in the Big Ten, just looking how things are, are starting to play out for Ohio State's schedule. But still for Michigan State, I mean, a, a team that came off of an 11-2 and season last year, everyone thought they, they had made a, you know, a serious step forward under Mel Tucker's leadership. Obviously, a lot of people right now, given the three-game losing streak, are, are kind of talking about Mel Tucker's you know, huge contract extension and everything like that, the, the amount of money he's making. And yeah, I went through and, and looked at all of Michigan State's, you know, stats on both sides of the ball on Sunday to, to prepare for my little, you know, five things to know piece about the Spartans. And you know, they, they aren't particularly impressive in, in any major category nationally or really in, the, in Big Ten play either. I'll throw some of those numbers at you here. The Spartans are, are 88th in the country in scoring offense, 99th in rushing 71st in passing, 92nd in total offense. Some of the, the defensive ones aren't quite as bad. A 54th against or, or in scoring defense, 62nd against the run, but but particularly bad against the pass. Dan at 115, which is always you know not a good sign when you're going to play a Ryan Day led Ohio State offense, especially with C.J. Stroud operating under. But if you remember last year, Michigan State actually finished the season dead last in pass defense. So. You know, Dan, it's a little bit of a step forward for for them in that department, but I don't think anyone, any Spartan fans are really going to be taking solace in the fact that, you know, the pass defense still ranks as low as it does. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been the rub on them, right, is their, their, their pass defense has been a weakness. So not exactly shocking to see that pass defense has continued to be a struggle for Michigan State. I think what's surprising is how bad all the other numbers are. I think what's surprising is, you know, how, 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 underperforming the offense has been. I mean, to see Michigan State score only 20 combined points in its first two Big Ten games, I mean, only 13 points against a Maryland team that's not known for defense. And and as you know, I mean, I with you on Maryland, I mean, I've, I've been somewhat of a believer in Maryland all year. And so, you know, I, I, I do agree with you that Maryland is going to be one of the tougher matchups in the remainder of the season for Ohio State. But still only score 13 points against Maryland, that that is a striking number for, for, for Michigan State. Now, you know, if the one the one thing you can say about Michigan State when you look at these numbers is, I mean, the, the three teams they've lost to, yeah, those are all solid teams. You know, Washington, Minnesota, Maryland, they, they're not bad teams. And so Minnesota's strength of schedule to this point has probably been somewhat stronger than other teams because they have played three quality opponents in a row, certainly now about to be four. But nevertheless, you're not supposed to lose all three of those games in a row when you're Michigan State. I mean, Michigan State was ranked 11th in the country before this. And, you know, we were talking about maybe they're a, you know, sleeper contender in the Big Ten East. And now, I mean, now you look at their season and you go, okay, they still got to play Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan. This is going to be a struggle for Michigan State just to get bowl eligible at this point. Yeah, and they're certainly feeling the loss of, of Kenneth Walker. Obviously, you guys will remember him from last year in the rushing department at quarterback Peyton Thorne. Last year, Dan had emerged as, you know, one of the better quarterbacks in the Big Ten this year. You know, not as much. His six interceptions 
are the most in the Big Ten. Passer rating, I think, is like ninth or tenth in the Big Ten among you know quarterbacks there. And Ohio State is going to go into East Lansing as a 23-point favorite, or at least they, they opened as a 23-point favorite. The line has since moved up to 25.5. How about this stat, Dan? You know, obviously fans will remember Michigan State having some some big wins, some consequential wins over Ohio State in recent years. But Michigan State has not beaten Ohio State in East Lansing since 1999, which is kind of a, a wild stat there. So it's not as though Ohio State has a history of, uh, you know, falling victim to the hostile environment there at Spartan Stadium. But Dan, what is your score prediction for this matchup on Saturday? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing on paper that suggests Michigan State should win this game or even come close, right? I mean, you just, you look at the way Michigan State has played so far this year, you got to think this game is going to be a struggle for them on on both sides of the ball. I mean, their offense has not, you know, again, their offense has not performed up to expectations at all, and and their past defense has struggled, which is going to be a problem when you're going up against C.J. Stroud. And so I think on paper, it's it's easy to see this game being a you know very lopsided blowout win for Ohio State, but I am going to go a little bit closer, man. I mean, as you know, I, you know, I've kind of had this gut feeling all year about first game on the road for Ohio State coming in the sixth game of a year. Maybe things are going to look a little bit clunky for the Buckeyes in in this game. And so I I still think the Buckeyes are going to win convincingly just because I think Ohio State is the much better team than Michigan State at this point. But, I mean, we saw it with, you know, Georgia playing Mizzou last week. Like, sometimes teams go on the road early in the season. Sometimes things just don't look quite the way they should. So, you know, with all that being said, I'm still going to pick Ohio State to – I'm going to pick Ohio State to cover the opening line, but not the line now. I'm going with Ohio State 41, Michigan State 17. Yeah, Dan, I'm going close to that. Close to that. Some of my, some of my game predictions in, in the last couple of weeks have not been among the best. Never of mine. In the 11 Warriors group here, but I'm going to to posit here a, a 38 to 17 victory for the Buckeyes. So not not quite covering that spread there but still a dominant performance for the Buckeyes. I agree, you know, with them going on the road, starting with so many home games in a row, it is going to, that is going to be a, something of a factor there for Ohio State, which I think maybe results in, you know, a, a little bit of out-of-sync play at the for the Ohio State offense at certain points. But I think the I think the Ohio State defense, you know, is going to continue rolling here against an offense that's really struggled, and I think Ohio State wins by three touchdowns. The most shocking news of a weekend, at least in my opinion, had to be on Sunday night when we learned that Paul Christ had been fired by Wisconsin. Just eight days after Wisconsin played Ohio State and lost 52-21, to but probably the more consequential result was Wisconsin getting blown out on their home field by Illinois and one Brett Bielema, who used to be the coach at Wisconsin, left there on not great terms, coming to Wisconsin and and blowing out the Badgers. That ultimately proved to be the final straw for Paul Christ after a two and three start to the season. But I don't know about you, Griffin. I would not have imagined we'd be talking about this right now when we were talking about Ohio State playing Wisconsin two weeks ago. Yeah, definitely a, a quick turn of events here. But, you know, the, the Wisconsin program hasn't exactly been 
particularly dominant in the, in the last few years, which I think is why you know this decision was ultimately made. They, they don't like the, the direction where things are going right now with the two and three start, of course. And, you know, it gives an opportunity now for, for Jim Leonard, you know, who, who was the defensive coordinator, stepping up as the interim head coach to now have, I believe, what, seven straight regular season games against un, currently unranked opponents. So, like, it, it seems like a good opportunity to kind of try things out there, right, to, to give him a chance in that role to, to see how that goes. But I will also say, you know, in, in reference to the whole day Shiano kerfuffle and things like that, I saw a lot of people like responding to to tweets and things like that that are maybe Wisconsin fans or, or whoever saying that they, they wish they had seen like that, that that level of passion out of out of a guy like Paul Christ, especially, you know, after that win. And I think, you know, that's that's something that's talked about a lot about Paul Christ. You don't get a lot of you know, fire. He doesn't, he, he doesn't necessarily seem from the, again, I'm from the outside looking in, you know, not, I obviously haven't p- played for Paul Chris or anything like that, but he's, he's kind of a guy that to me doesn't inspire. He doesn't make you want to run through a brick wall exactly, Dan. And, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm in, in that regard, I wasn't all that shocked to see him go. Maybe the timing was surprising, but the fact that Wisconsin would, you know, want to go a different direction, given how the season started, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I can see, I can see it, I can see it. The most devastating part of his firing is that we're not going to get to see any more clips put out by the Big Ten Network of of Chris grumbling out two or three word answers when asked about, you know, his favorite TV show or what music he listens to before the game. They do all those little fun snippets that they record at Big Ten Media Days, and the, the Scott Frost ones have already been locked up in a vault somewhere, never to be seen by the public, <laughs> and now. The Paul Chris Clips will join him there as the Big Ten has already fired two coaches this year now in Scott Frost and 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 Paul Christ. And, you know, I think it, it, the overlap there is interesting because, you know, I think you could see some of the same names potentially come up in these coaching searches. You know, a, a guy like Lance Leopold, who who's a, off to such a great start this year at Kansas, you know, he his name has come up a lot at Nebraska, but Oh yeah, he he's a Wisconsin native, so he sure would make a lot of sense at Wisconsin. Now, you know, I think you made the point about Jim Leonard. I do think that has a lot to do with the timing here. I think the rest of his season is going to be an audition of sorts for Jim Leonard. And I think a big reason why they're making this change now is because they want to see what Jim Leonard can do and then ultimately make a decision on whether Jim Leonard should be the full-time coach of Wisconsin going forward. And so I I think the job may be his to lose at this point, but that, that I think a lot of that could certainly depend on how the next seven weeks go for Wisconsin and if he can get things back on track and Wisconsin, you know, might make a decision from there. But, you know, as our own uh, Josh Paloa in our, our company Slack, he posed an interesting question. We were talking about this on Sunday is, you know, who's going to get the better coach, Wisconsin or Nebraska? And like, which one is the better job? Like, I, that's a tough question to answer. Like, I think the gut reaction would be to say Wisconsin just because they've been more successful in recent years. I also think Nebraska might be willing to spend more money than Wisconsin. And so that's going to be a, a big factor in this. But like, what say you, Griffin? Like, what, what do you think is the better Big Ten West job opening right now? 
Yeah, it's like you said, you know, Wisconsin has more recent success, although not necessarily on a national level in terms of, you know, CFP appearances or, or really contending in, in that regard. Nebraska has, you know, a lot of historical prestige as well, you know, perhaps more so than Wisconsin. But I don't know how, how many, you know, people, players coming up nowadays kind of think of, of Nebraska as as that prestigious, you know, program. I mean, like, so you, you look at it, in, in terms of that, I would probably say Wisconsin for that reason. But like you said, I mean, the the following for, for football, you know, in Lincoln and in, in that the culture surrounding football and the, the prestige of the program going back decades and decades is certainly a factor. And that's why, like you said, I think that it could potentially mean more money for a head coach that ends up there. It is funny thinking back to Big Ten media days and Kevin Warren proudly bringing up the fact that the Big Ten had all had brought back all 14 of its coaches. And now <laughs> we're less than a week into October and two of them are already gone. Yeah, it is pretty funny. I mean, as I said, I said in my my stock piece and another one bites the dust, proverbially speaking here. So, yeah, things have been the seats have been hot in the Big Ten to open the season. And, you know, it, it's no surprise that both of those jobs you know, coming out of the Big Ten West, Dan, because I think that that division in general has been, you know, a, a complete mess right now with a lot of those teams kind of picking each other off. You know, just this past week, we thought that Minnesota had really emerged as the front runner in that group, having a, she's still been undefeated there, but but they end up losing now to Purdue. And suddenly, you know, with Illinois' win, Illinois is right there too, Dan. I mean, who would have thought that? Obviously, it's we're still early in the action here, but you know, everybody's kind of in, in in the running here as we speak, aside from Wisconsin being, you know, winless in Big Ten. But but there's a lot to unfold in the Big Ten West right now. And no serious front runner necessarily, I think, after we saw the Minnesota loss, unless you feel otherwise. Northwestern has lost its last four straight games, including games against Southern Illinois and Miami, Ohio, and is somehow tied for the Big Ten West lead <laughs> right now. I, I don't think that will hold the way they've been playing, but that just speaks to the situation in the Big Ten West right now, where there is just no clear front runner. I, I would even with the loss to Purdue over the weekend, I would still pick Minnesota to win the Big Ten West right now. I do believe they are the most well-rounded team in that division. And, you know, we, we've seen Purdue play spoiler maker before, but not a particularly impressive performance there. And I believe Mohamed Ibrahim was dealing with an in- the, the rushing offense that had been so strong for Minnesota in the first month of the season did not have anywhere near that kind of success against Purdue as they averaged just 1.8 yards per carry. And so you know, the health of, of Ibrahim and getting that rushing offense back on track is certainly going to be pivotal to Minnesota's chances in the Big Ten West. But man, I mean, if you're Kevin Warren right now, if you're Big Ten leadership right now, are you kicking yourself for not moving things along quicker in the process of eliminating divisions? Because I mean, I certainly still think that's something that's going to happen within the next year or two before USC and UCLA join the Big Ten. I, I think the future of the Big Ten likely is a divisionless structure in which the top two teams in the conference are playing in the Big Ten championship game. And certainly, I, I think that would be a better situation for the Big Ten to be in this year because I think it's very likely that at least the three best teams in the Big Ten this year are going to come out of the East. Yeah, Dan, I mean, no teams in the Big Ten West currently ranked in the AP Top 25. In the East, you've got Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State all in the top 10 right now. So, I mean, that just goes to show you alone, you know, kind of the divide between the two divisions there. And, uh, you know, Dan, honestly, we've had some some, some 
fun fun I guess is a relative term depending on you know the the person or the fan base or things but with Mel Tucker and the the horseshit coach remark then you've got the the Tom Allen thing from this past week the the biggest clown in college football remarks from the the Nebraska assistant or whatever the two the two firings now the Greg Schiano and and uh, you know Ryan Day kerfuffle uh, this past weekend there's been a lot of, of fun and intrigue in terms of of coaching coaching head coaching stuff in the Big 10 so far in this uh, early season Gotta love Coach Beefs, right? Coach Beef, yes, indeed. Stock is up for Coach Beef this week, by the way, if, if you uh, did not know. Looking at the betting odds right now to win the national championship, Ohio State is now, at, at many sports books the favorite to win the national championship. Just looking at the odds from Bovada, Ohio State is currently a plus 200 favorite with Georgia just behind at plus 210 and Alabama just behind them at plus 220. Those three are really close together, but a huge gap back to the next team, Clemson, which has 12 to 1 odds, followed by USC at 16 to 1 odds, and Michigan at 20 to 1 odds. And, you know, I think certainly, I, I think there's a consensus right now that the three best teams are in some order Ohio State, Georgia, and Alabama. And I think there's also a consensus right now that the next three best teams in some order are Clemson, USC, in Michigan. I do find the dichotomy between the betting odds and the polls to be interesting right now because Ohio State is third in both the AP and coaches polls. If it, if it, the AP and coaches polls both rank them Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, but you look at those betting odds, it's Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama. And then you look at that second tier, Michigan is fourth in both polls ahead of Clemson and USC. Yet Michigan comes in sixth from the betting odds behind Clemson and USC. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that the only two of these teams that are going to play each other during the regular season are Ohio State and Michigan. And so I think a lot of that goes to the odds makers believing that Ohio State is going to beat Michigan, which makes it less likely that Michigan will make the college football playoff. But, you know, I think certainly that, you know, dichotomy at the top is is interesting because you know we, we've kind of talked about you know who should be number one and number two and I mean it doesn't it really doesn't matter this early in the season but the fact that the odds makers right now view Ohio State as the most likely team to win the national championship uh, that probably adds a little fuel to the argument that Ohio State should be ranked higher than third. Yeah, Dan, and I know the, the past couple of weeks I've kind of held back on that notion saying like, okay, like Georgia and Alabama or Georgia and Alabama, like I don't really have that much of a problem keeping them ahead. But but we saw, you know, several top teams among that, that, that group you just listed there struggle on Saturday, whereas Ohio State did not. And Ohio State continues to look like the complete package, really. I mean, if you talk about what we know Ohio State can do in the passing game, what it's shown it can do in the passing game, what it's been doing now in the run game consistently for, for several games, even with its backup running back, you know, out there and on defense, too, with with uh, Jim Knowles and company ranking number 10 in total defense, albeit, you know, not against the greatest offenses in the world. But, you know, you play who you play. So at, at this point so far and the teams that, 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 that Georgia and company ha- have played this this past week, you know, gave them a run for their money. And, and that's you know, we haven't really seen that happen with Ohio State. You know, the the, the, the season opener against Notre Dame being one thing, but. 
you know, I would definitely have Ohio State higher in the polls right now. Even Alabama, like the final score of that game looked more impressive than I think the overall performance actually was. They needed a, a big fourth quarter. That was true of a few teams here in, in that group. C, you know, the thing it was tight at halftime. I think they were up by like four or something at halftime in, in their game. Clemson as well only only beats up what NC State by by 10 points there for their second straight close call. So Ohio State just hasn't had, you know, a, a real close call like that. I mean, in, in the Notre Dame game, Dan, I mean, it was an 11 point win, but it's not like Notre Dame was particularly threatening in that second half. You know what I mean? Ohio State had control of that game. So yeah. And then, you know, Bryce Young for Alabama as well, having that, that AC joint injury. Now he's day to day. So we're, we're, we're seeing some, some cracks in the armor, I think, in, in some of these top teams that we haven't seen from Ohio State. And I think that's why I would at this point definitely boost Ohio State. I mean, I would have no problem with Ohio State being number one right now. Alabama, the final score of that game, if you're just looking at the final score of their their game on Saturday, you're like, okay, well, move them ahead of Georgia. If we have to, you know, have Georgia move down for their their close win against Missouri. But but I would have absolutely no problem with Ohio State being number one. Yeah, I think the strongest argument you could make for Ohio State being number one right now is a fact that they've controlled every game. Like they they they've been the most consistently dominant team, most you know, consistently winning convincingly. I mean, we've seen Georgia two weeks in a row now uh, against Kent State and Mizzou, you know, look a lot more beatable than they did in the first few weeks of a season. You know, Al- Alabama, you know, I think you're certainly their biggest win of a season to date against Arkansas, but, you know, we saw them have a close call against Texas as well. And so I, I think it becomes an argument of where you could say, okay, Al- Alabama and Georgia have probably faced a little bit stronger competition Today, I think the fact that, you know, both Notre Dame and Wisconsin have fallen short of expectations is one reason why Ohio State is is third in the polls right now, rather than in the top two, because those wins have just lost some of their luster. But, you know, I think if you're just going off, you know, which team has been most dominant, you could certainly make a strong case for Ohio State being number one right now. Ultimately, though, I'm, I think we probably still agree that we probably both expect all three of those teams to be in the college football playoff. Griffin, I think last week you had Clemson as your fourth team in the playoff. Anything you saw this past weekend that would change your mind on that? Yeah, get Clemson out of there. Get Clemson out of there. I had USC in that spot coming into the season. Maybe I'll throw USC back in that mix. Clemson, I don't know. I just, I just, I, I, I'm not going to stick with Clemson. Two, two, you know, close games in a row here for the Tigers. I didn't believe in them, you know, last year either. But Dan, I, I want to throw this at you before you kind of weigh in here. How likely is a scenario where, you know, a, a Michigan team, let's say, that has one loss to Ohio State finds itself in the college football playoff? How likely is it that, that both Ohio State and Michigan could be in that top four by the end of the year? It's certainly possible. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's all going to depend on how it plays out everywhere else, right? I mean, it's all going to depend. Like, can Clemson run the table? Can can USC run the table? Can Alabama and Georgia run the table to an SEC championship game? I mean, it's all going to come down to what happens everywhere else. But I, I, I don't rule it out. I mean, I think, I think if 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 Michigan can go into that game eleven and zero, and then if they you know they lose to Ohio State, that keeps them out of the Big Ten championship game. But they're uh, 11 and one with their only loss being to Ohio State. I think there's a very good chance that their resume could ultimately stack up as one of the, the four best at the end of a season. And so there's such a long way to go. It's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, we know the committee tends to favor conference champs. And so do I think a one loss Michigan would get over a getting over a one loss ACC champ Clemson or a one loss 
Pac-12 champ USC in that situation, or even a you know one loss Pac-12 champ Utah, however it might work out. I'd say probably not, but I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out if, if Michigan can go 11 and one if the only loss being to Ohio State or or vice versa. If if Ohio State loses to Michigan, not that anybody wants to hear that, and then they're 11 and one, and, and that's their only loss, I, I think they'd have a chance too. And so I, I certainly don't rule it out. But you know, it's funny what you said because. I actually kind of went the other way this week where I had said USC last week. Now I'm almost leaning toward Clemson. So it's, it's kind of funny how our perspectives were different on that. You know, I think, you know, yeah, Clemson's played two close games, but they've also played two ranked teams in a row and they've beat them. And so, you know, I think they've shown some resiliency, the ability to win tough games. We've seen DJ Uwe Anglele the past couple of weeks finally start to look like that five-star quarterback that he, he's been expected to be. You know, his defense had a tough day against Wake Forest, but they bounced back nicely against NC State. And so I, I'm actually becoming more of a believer in, in Clemson here over, over, especially after this past week, you know, beating NC State. You know, clo- close game, but also NC State had a late touchdown there. So, you know, I think, you know, it was maybe a little bit more of a convincing win than the scoreboard showed. You know, kind of similarly for for, for USC, you know, they, they, they kind of faced some resistance to the defense looked a little bit shaky, especially in the first half of, of that game that they played against. Arizona State. And so, you know, very, very close for me right now between those two. But like I said, I mean, I think, you know, to me, I mean, I think, you know, I feel like, you know, until they lose like Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, whatever order, they're my top three. And then after that, it's it's Michigan, Clemson, USC, and whatever order. They're that, they're that next tier. I mean, there's some other teams right now, like, you know, Tennessee and Oklahoma State and, and Penn State that are kind of lurking there, Ole Miss that are kind of lurking there and that that next tier, but I, I, I still would put everybody else in a, in a third tier after those top six. And now for something completely different. We have a, a fun, quick hitter here from Seattle Linga who wants a breakdown of what a typical day in the life of Dan Hope, Don Hope, as some refer to him as. What is the day, the typical day of, li- of your life like on a Ohio State game day, Dan. Yeah, so typically I arrive at Ohio Stadium about three to four hours before the game, d- d- depending on the game. You know, if it's if it's a noon game, I'm probably getting there. You know, around 9 a.m. If it's a you know 7:30 game, maybe I'm getting there around you know 3:30. It just just kind of depends on you know what what time I decide to leave and you know try to beat some of the traffic into Ohio Stadium. And so you know I'm usually there again three or four hours before the game and. You know, I get there, I'll, you know, usually the first thing I do when I get to the press box, I look and see what NFL teams are on the press box list and then I'll, I'll share that with everyone. And then, you know, you usually, you know, usually you kind of have a little bit of time to kill when you get there. You know, usually they put it a press box meal about, you know, two and a half, three hours before the game. So usually I'll try to eat then because I know it'll be a while before I eat a big meal after. And then, you know, typically about two hours before the game, that's when skull session happens. Griffin's usually over there. Then the players will walk through the stadium and that's usually the point where I'll go down to the field and I'll usually kind of hang out down on the field for most of warmups. You know, usually there's, you know, a few players who maybe they're injured or something, you're looking for them or, you know, you're just kind of observing everything that's happening before the game, you know, taking videos, photos, sharing updates on Twitter, what whatnot while you're down there before the game and then typically about, you know, 20 to 30 minutes before the game, head back up to the press box, get set up, get get ready for the game to start. You know, I'll kind of 
open up a, a document and start, you know, kind of making Michelle for our instant cap, as we call it, our, our instant recap that is published as soon as the game ends, which means, you know, the, the last four weeks have been easier in that regard than when you have a tight game that comes down to the wire, which that can make it very stressful to try to get a story out as soon as the game ends. But, you know, when it's a blowout, it makes it a little bit more comfortable. But, you know, during the game, you know, I'm typically, I'm, I'm writing my recap as I watch the game. So, you know, throughout the game, I'm kind of adding different things that happen and, you know, sometimes even anticipating what's going to happen to kind of write. And then a lot of times you have to make changes, but you know, I'll be writing, you know, as I'm, as I'm watching the game, you know, tweeting updates of stuff, you know, again, you know, let's say, you know, players hurt or something, then probably looking out for them on, on the sideline or I'm watching to see, okay, which players running the game. Hey, here's a freshman who hasn't played yet all, all year. That's interesting. Just, you know, watching the game, you know, trying to make different observations as I watch the game while, you know, also writing to have my story done as, as soon as the game ends. And then as soon as the game ends, I rush down to get to the press conference room, which, you know, the press box is on one side of the field, the Victory Bell Tower, where they hold the press conference is on the opposite side of the field. So you have to go down, you have to navigate your way through the crowd to get around the stadium, to get up to the press conference on the other side of the field go to the press conference, you know, get our interviews, get all that, then go back to the press box. Typically, you know, a feature, a post-game feature story on whatever, you know, I think is most interesting to write about from that game. I'll typically write about that, you know, while I'm still at the stadium. And I'm, and I'm just kind of going with a, a home game here because, you know, that's, you know, what we've been doing so far this season. You know, go back up to the press box, write write our feature. Then a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll leave after I finish that feature, drive home, and then I also write an, a notebook, which Ivor publishes that night or the next day. And I'll, and I'll do that when I get home as well. And so, you know, it, it, it's a long day, I would say, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, typically it, it starts, you know, three or four hours before the game. And it doesn't end from a work standpoint until four or five hours after the game, you know. And so, like, if it's like, you know, this past week, I think I was done I don't know, like what, like 1 a.m. or something after a, a free a free 30 game. I don't I don't remember exactly, but you know, generally, you know, if it's a noon game, you know, maybe I'm finishing, you know, everything up by like eight, nine o'clock. If it's a night game, I'm probably not done with everything until like four in the morning. And so, you know, it's 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 a long day. It's 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 you know, a lot of it's usually, you know, an 11, 12. 13 hour work day, which it's, it's fun. It's, it, it's fun. It's certainly a, a cool thing to get to do, but you know, that's the one thing that I don't know if people always realize is that when the game ends, your work is only just beginning. Oh yeah. People have no concept of that. Everyone thinks that like, you know, uh, maybe a, a couple hours after the game, like I'll have people that know me or like text me like, Oh, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm still at the stadium. Like, and I'm not going to be done anytime soon. But yeah, then you talking about the, the stresses of the recaps was, was giving me war flashbacks to, to, to last year's uh, basketball season <laughs> with every game recap coming down to like the final shot of me just in a full sweat at the end of every single game. <laughs> but on the topic of basketball though, Dan, we'll, we'll finish up here with this one. Ohio State on Thursday is having its uh, Buckeyes on the Blacktop event open to fans 
again, 7 p.m. on Thursday on the outdoor basketball courts outside the RPAC. If any of you, you know, want to go check that out, there's going to be some five-on-five action. It's both the, the men's and women's basketball teams for Ohio State. There's going to be some five-on-five scrimmaging. There's going to be some three-point shooting contests. And, and perhaps most interesting, a slam dunk contest, Dan, with the participants as follows. Felix Akpara, Kalen Etzler, Roddy Gale, and Bryce Sensabaugh. I said yesterday, my money is on Bryce Sensabaugh to win that one walking away because of the things I've seen that man do. His, his athleticism is just, he's hes really sneakily athletic, just the way he moves. He's got some, some serious bounce to him that, you know, enables him to do some crazy in-game dunks. I've seen him do some crazy in-game dunks in the Kingdom League over the summer. Dan, I think, you know, the, the biggest guy always kind of gets penalized because it looks easier. So that's why I think a guy like Felix Akpar might be up against it. But, you know, Kalen Etzler can, can certainly get up. I haven't seen much dunking from Roddy Gale, so I can't really comment on that. So that's why I'm going with Bryce Sensabaugh. as my favorite in that. What say you? Yeah, I would I would give sense of I would make sense of the odds on favorite as well. I think Etzler pro, that I, that would be my pick as well for who will be the toughest competition. But I've got to go with sense of it should be fun. And, and maybe we'll see Gene Smith get back on the blacktop as well. I know in 2016, that was perhaps the last time they did this event. I, I, I haven't heard about this event since I started covering Ohio State the three or four years ago now. But but hopefully we'll see Gene Smith. Maybe Gene Smith, you know, comes in and, and does a dunk in the, the dunk contest and steals the whole thing. Or maybe someone jumps over uh, Gene Smith. You know, people love doing that in the in the dunk contest. That would certainly be great to see as well. Yeah, Gene had a nice smooth behind the back crossover last time at the event. Like I said, neither of us were there because neither of us were even on the beat at that time. That was back in 2016, but that should be a fun event. Hope I can make it out. Don't know if I will be, but if if, if not, I, I know that Griffin and Garrick will be there to get some videos and, and photos and all the fun. So looking forward to seeing all of that, all of that coming on 11warriors.com as well as full coverage of this week's game against Michigan State. And then next week, it'll be a bye week. So we'll kind of do some mid-season evaluations on Ohio State as we hit the halfway point uh, of the Ohio State football season. So hope you'll tune back in next week and check that out. Uh, Until then, have a great week and we'll talk to you soon.